Father, we thank you for this wonderful time of worshiping you tonight and just the reminder of the greatness of your grace and the greatness of your love, the darkness that you went into to reach us and to pull us into the light and the beauty of this life. We are so grateful for your work within our lives. And Father, we thank you for every revelation that you give us of yourself and of our Savior in your Bible. And we pray that you would give us a supernatural ability to not just look at what we'll look at tonight as just simple and uh, events in Jesus' life disconnected from him, but as a revelation of him. And so we pray that you would use tonight to help us to know more about you, more about him, and to love you all the more for it and to worship you all the greater. And we pray for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. John's Gospel, chapter 12 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to chapter 12. And coming into chapter 12, where Jesus' death upon the cross is just uh, approximately a week away. And so you see as um, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, um, the vast majority of the book is given over to, those gospels given over to his life and his ministry, and then appropriately, an appropriate space given for his death, burial, and his resurrection toward the end of those gospels, Virtually half of the Gospel of John deals with Jesus' uh, final week of his life. And so we start to dip our toe into that uh, here uh, this evening. And uh, uh, ultimately, uh, Jesus' crucifixion is going to take his disciples completely by surprise. Not because he hadn't warned them and informed them over and over and over again that it was about to happen, uh, but because they just didn't uh, think it was possible. They just didn't listen. But there was one woman who did listen to him as he spoke about these things, and uh, she is characterized and portrayed here in the early part of chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom uh, Jesus had raised from the dead. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We know from one of the other Gospels that this meal that they're partaking of here, we'll read about it in just a moment, but uh, that it took place in the home of a gentleman by the name of Simon the leper. And uh, presumably he is named that uh, because uh, prior to his contact with Jesus, he had uh, been a leper and Jesus had cleansed him of his leprosy and his home could uh, accommodate probably maybe a greater crowd than uh, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. As we're going to see here, uh, there's not just two or three people enjoying uh, this meal in this home. There's fully 17 people, Mary, uh, Martha, Lazarus. There's going to be uh, uh, Simon and then the 12 disciples. And so it's a pretty good-sized group. So here is the city that they're in They made him, that is Jesus' supper, 
and Martha appropriately, she served the meal. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. And so the meal is served. Uh, Lazarus is sitting and partaking of it with Jesus as Martha is doing what she loved to do so much, and that is to take that role of a servant and uh, serving the meal. After the meal, we're told that then Mary uh, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and she took the oil and she anointed Jesus' feet and uh, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance uh, of the oil. And so uh, here is this beautiful act of worship. This is the Mary. Every time we see her in the Scriptures, we find her at Jesus' uh, feet, and she takes this uh, oil of, uh, of um, uh, spikenard, very, very expensive as we're told here, would have been about a year's wages for a, um, a blue-collar worker in that culture, in this culture. So what are we looking at? We're looking at 50, 60, 70, 80,000 uh, dollars today. So you just stop and think about what kind of a, a ding it would put um, in your <laughs> resources for a single act for Jesus to take a sixty, seventy, eighty thousand uh, dollar bite out of that, and yet that's exactly what uh, she uh, she does here, and she does it without the slightest hesitation. And I don't know that it's the only thing that she uh, possessed, but I do think it was the only thing that she possessed that could fully communicate. Uh, the greatness of her love uh, toward Jesus and what uh, he meant to her. She then, as the oil was uh, anointed on Jesus' feet, she then proceeded to wipe his feet with her hair, and the result was the filling of the whole house uh, with the fragrance of the oil. Spikenard was a scented oil, and uh, so the home would have taken on that fragrance. You notice that Mary's actions, they produced an immediate reaction on the part of all of the disciples. But here we learn that the ringleader of this protest was none other than Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. And uh, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? He understood the price of it uh, and given to the poor. It is always, always, always a bad idea to criticize the worship of another person or the expression of their adoration toward the Lord. And it is always a bad idea to do it publicly, no matter what the motive might be. Jesus isn't going to take kindly uh, to this uh, at all. When a person is worshiping the Lord, that is a, about the most intimate act that occurs within life and uh, a very vulnerable expression from our lives to Him and a beautiful expression. And it's really, that's between them and God and we keep our hands off of that. But Judas here, he clamors here, uh, and, and considers, as we read about in another gospel, the disciples with him declare that the whole thing 
uh, is uh, a waste. And in fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that uh, this attitude of Judas had infected the rest of the twelve, and they, they were indignant at this, what they called uh, this waste. And so it literally hurt them as they watched her open up this uh, oil of spikenard and then pour it on Jesus' feet. They thought it was a waste. They thought it was like throwing it away. Now you look at the disconnect between this woman, Mary, and the apostles. And it is a massive disconnect. And she is on the right side of this thing, and they are in a terrible place in the assessment of worship, the assessment of the need to worship and to worship sacrificially uh, in our lives and direct it toward uh, God. And so this is how these future apostles at this point uh, viewed it as a waste. We're told the motive behind Judas's complaint and this leaven that he uh, introduced into the whole situation. This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So he was the treasurer for the twelve. He's the one that held the money, used the money to spend for whatever the needs might be. Here we learn that he was also... And in line with the great sin that took him down, covetousness, uh, he would pilfer the money uh, for his own uh, purposes. And so we, we see so little clearly with our outward eye and our understanding. If we knew the motivations behind the complaints or the tearing down of other people for their love for the Lord and these kind of things, I, we would be aghast. We would, we would interpret these situations in an entirely different way. And uh, without this revelation, we wouldn't know that this was what was going on behind the scenes. And here we see how uh, doubly ugly that it is in the true motivation uh, of Judas Iscariot here. It is interesting to me that uh, Jesus allowed Judas of the twelve uh, to be the treasure among the group, knowing that he was covetous and knowing that he, he was a thief. And, and I have found that Jesus will give each of us in our Christian service enough rope to either make something with it or to hang ourselves with it. And he entrusts it to us, and then what we do with that uh, will then reveal our, our character and our attitude toward him. And this was a tremendous privilege and a grace that was given to Judas. And what happens here is not an exposure in any way of Jesus' lack of wisdom in doing so. It was the opportunity that he gives to all of us to do something good or to do uh, something bad with what it is that he entrusts to us and expose our hearts in doing that. Really, it is uh, uh, important to understand, and it's kind of tragic to, to realize here that the most spiritual and the most spiritually insightful people uh, among God's people are not necessarily its leaders. Uh, they were not in, in this particular place, and they, uh, they rarely are. Uh, in any church. And I speak for myself. Uh, 
and, and so just because somebody is a leader doesn't mean that they understand these kind of things experientially in a way that many other people do in the congregation. We're all growing. We're all learning uh, about these, uh, these things. And so uh, Mary here, she's more in tune with the heart of Jesus and what he's going through this final week before his crucifixion, uh, way uh, more uh, empathetic toward Jesus and, and uh, compassionate than ever the twelve uh, were. And so we uh, cannot expect the greatness of our love for the Lord and the sacrifices that we make for the Lord to be understood by everyone else. Certainly not people in the world. And so uh, you did what on Sunday night? Yeah, I went to church. And I thought you went there in the morning. Yeah, I did, but I came again on Sunday night. And, uh, and then you volunteer in the children's ministry or you volunteer in the parking lot or, and then you do this and you attend a home Bible study and you read your Bible every day and they think we're crazy. But they can't even begin to understand. So we, we get all of that. But the hardest part is when other Christians don't. And when other Christians take, like in this scene, and they make Martha, Mary out to be the fanatic, that she's taking all of this too far, way too serious, in her relationship with the Lord, the expression of the sacrifice, in her worship of the Lord, and then when you are, you are shunned as kind of a fanatic and a radical, even among Christians, the importance of realizing you're not the one to change. Let God bring everybody else along related to that. There is no sacrifice that we can make for Jesus that is greater than what he deserves. And there is uh, no sacrifice that we will ever make for him uh, that we won't one day in glory uh, be more than thrilled over the fact uh, that we uh, that we did so. And so uh, here uh, is this, uh, this opposition to her worship. It's really, in its own way, it's just, just one of the ugliest scenes in the Bible. When you put yourself in that place, one of the most beautiful expressions of worship and love to the Lord, and Judas Iscariot tromps right through it, with his just crummy mind, covetous filthiness related to this, and he tramples all over it. And you put yourself in that room, and I mean, you just would be looking for an exit or just thinking, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here, for how quickly something turned. It would just be so uncomfortable to be in the middle of. There's only one person in that room that can redeem that situation. And that's Jesus himself, and he comes to Mary's rescue. And Jesus said, let her alone. If you ever hear the Lord say to you, let her alone, you're in trouble. Now, so as, as strong in a wrong way is what has been done on the part of the disciples and on the part of, part of Judas here, here, Jesus meets it with an equal strength. 
And so he says to, to them, let her alone. We might say, back off or drop it. It's the kind of thing that someone says to a bunch of bullies who are ganging up on one person. And it's not just men ganging up on a, women, on a woman, it's 12 men ganging up on a woman in that room. And Jesus tells them to back off in this situation. And he said, for let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always uh, have. And so Jesus understood her motivation. Sometimes uh, when I'm officiating or attending a memorial service, you'll have somebody that will get up and they'll give a eulogy, which means to speak well of, of the, the person that is deceased. And uh, it isn't unusual for someone to get up in, in the loss of, of someone that they love so much and they'll say, tell, them you, tell your loved ones you love them now. You never know when you're going to be, uh, when they can be taken away from you. And you never have an opportunity in this life to, to do that. And I always, when I sit there, I want to pull out my cell phone and call Karen. And it, because it's such a good word. We put off all these things that we, we uh, you know, are intending to do or we think it's obvious or all, but then the opportunity is gone. And she realizes the opportunity to do this is going to be gone in a week. And she only has this opportunity to express her heart of love in this way. And so she chooses uh, to, to do that. And so she didn't want to wait and pour this on Jesus' dead body as an expression of, of her love for him. She wanted to do it while he was still alive, and, she under, and he understood that. Well, Jesus, when he continually declared to the disciples, he spoke to them about the fact he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be crucified, he would be buried, he would rise again on the third day. All of these things just simply went over the head of the disciples. But Mary listened to it. She took those things seriously. And, and because she did here, she's got a compassion that none of them have. When Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, but me you don't have always, he's not minimizing uh, ministry to the poor. Uh, the God of the Bible and Jesus himself, God the Father, have a tremendous heart for the poor uh, in, in, this, in this world, and, and we should uh, 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 as well. He just simply saying that they would always have many opportunities to do good to the poor, but that Mary would not have the opportunity to pour this oil upon him before his death. This was probably going to be her, uh, her one chance to do that. I want you to notice very carefully the actions of Mary there in verse 3. She anoints Jesus' head with oil. Um, that wasn't unusual at all in that culture. Uh, the anointing of Jesus' feet, as we're told in another gospel with oil, that was not unusual in the culture. What's very unusual here is the fact that she then purposely wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It wasn't that she didn't have a towel readily available in that home uh, to use. She didn't want a towel. 
And uh, she deliberately, using her hair as a, tie, uh, as a towel, she was taking the fragrance of Jesus upon herself. And clearly, she desires that there would be a fragrance, an afterglow left upon her life as a result of this act of worship, this time spent at, at his, uh, at his uh, feet and uh, after her time of worshiping him was, was over and that this, she would then take that fragrance and carry it upon her, uh, her life long after this time at his feet had ceased. I think that just as Mary took that on the fragrance of Jesus by spending time in worship at his feet, the same thing is true of us as Christians. When we take time and it, I don't know if any of you have used a, 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 a oil of spikenard in your worship of the Lord. Uh, but anybody that spends any time worshiping the Lord as a Christian, we are giving God something as valuable as that and even more because we are giving Him our time. And the one thing that we have that is very finite in our lives, this side of heaven, is, is time. And so when we offer the Lord and reading our Bibles, our devotional time, worshiping the Lord in the way that we have today or worshiping it, it at home, uh, spending time at His feet before we begin the day, we are offering Him the most precious thing that we have in life. And there is always a spiritual afterglow to that time that is spent at Jesus' feet. There's something, what, what we offer to Him, uh, then we take on that fragrance as well. And then we carry it on into the day uh, with us. The Apostle Paul, he called it the fragrance of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge, that is, uh, of Christ in every place, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When we spend time at Jesus' feet worshiping him in, in, in the same kind of way, we take on a fragrance. When Paul writes there to the church at Corinth, he talks about diffusing the fragrance of his knowledge. And that word knowledge there, again, is that Greek word gnosko. It means a knowledge that comes by experience. And it is that time spent, the, what we experience between us and Jesus in that way, so often to begin the day, we carry that fragrance now with us into the day. And you might notice as a result of, of your quiet time or devotional time with the Lord that when we spend time with Him in the morning and then head out into the day, our life carries a fragrance that it wouldn't otherwise have. And we also know it about our lives is if we, if we take and we don't spend that time with the Lord for one, two, three, four days, we realize that now when we get up, get in the car, head out wherever we're heading, that we are no longer taking that fragrance out of the world, but we're taking the old stinkerama of our flesh. And we know there's a difference about our lives 
We know there's a difference about the fragrance that we're carrying. People know the difference in our lives based upon whether we have spent that time with Christ or whether we haven't. Now, most people uh, are uh, even within a marriage, a husband and a wife. Most people are tactful enough uh, not to say, you haven't done your devotion, you haven't had your devotional time in a long time, have you? Or in a few days, or did you forget to do that today? Because there's a recognition now, an entirely different fragrance is being brought into the day than the fragrance we would bear if we spent that time at Jesus' feet. And I think all of us understand uh, all of this very, uh, very, very well related to our own lives. It's like Moses in the Old Testament when he went in uh, to the tabernacle and then he would commune with God. He would come out and his face would be glowing from the fellowship. There's an afterglow to engaging with God in this uh, way. And she wanted that afterglow to be a part uh, of her life. And I think this passage is one of the most powerful pictures in the Bible for uh, the effect that our devotional time or quiet time has upon uh, our, uh, our lives and the impact upon those uh, around us. Now, we're told in verse 9 that a great many of the Jews knew uh, that Jesus was there in the house. And they came, not for uh, Jesus' sake alone, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised uh, from the dead. So the word had gone out of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead. We saw that in the last chapter. They wanted to come and see Jesus. They wanted to see the evidence of this, this great miracle of resurrection. And uh, so... Uh, coming and see, seeing this, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death uh, also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in uh, Jesus. And so here is Lazarus. Uh, he creates a, a real problem uh, for the Jewish religious leaders who are plotting Jesus' death in earnest uh, by this point. And that is this resurrection of Lazarus has caused people to come to faith in, uh, in Christ. And this persecution is, is brought uh, against Lazarus as a result. The change that God makes in our lives when we're born again, when we experience a spiritual resurrection that happens within our lives, we think, as I mentioned, I think a Sunday or two ago, I mean, here we are, after that happens, months after it happens, years after it happens, and we've never been nicer or kinder or a better person than we've ever been in our lives because of what he's done. And we would think that everybody would love us all the more uh, for it and uh, respect it at the, at the very uh, least. And so it can surprise us when there are those that are uh, like the religious Jews here that then want to plot our death. And of course, we don't have religious Jews plotting our death. Uh, we have an enemy that's far greater than that, the devil, who looks to do that now in some way to, to, to kill or to uh, assassinate our, uh, our good name, uh, uh, the, the marvel of the miracle that God has done in our lives by leading us into compromise or leading us into sin. And uh, so here they plotted uh, the, the, uh, G, uh, Lazarus and, and wanted to put him to death uh, as well. And the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast 
Uh, Jerusalem is really filling up at this point for the Feast of Passover. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, they took branches of palm trees, they went out to meet him, and they cried out to Jesus as he entered uh, Jerusalem, uh, formally being presented as Messiah to the nation uh, through this event. They begin to cry out from Psalm 118, that great messianic psalm, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They are clearly proclaiming uh, Messiahship to Jesus here. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it, uh, that also being in fulfillment of what was written by Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, uh, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, uh, sitting on a donkey's uh, colt. And so this multitude, this crowd, excited for this, this great event. I mean, here you've got this beautiful spring day. Jesus is making his way uh, from the Mount of Olives, going down through the Kidron Valley, coming up into Jerusalem. And, and you picture it in your mind if you've ever uh, uh, been there. And this great celebration, the people are just thrilled at, uh, at this uh, Jesus coming, Jesus being revealed in this way, Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophets and and even uh, doing so. And it's just a, a scene of pure uh, joy. Uh, his disciples did not understand these things at first, and so they're a little slower than the crowd at this point. <laughs> uh, leaders aren't looking that great in this passage of Scripture, uh, by the way. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that uh, they had done these things to him. So all kinds of lights started to go on for them uh, after the fact. And therefore, the people who were with him, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, they uh, make up a large number of this crowd that is crying out to Jesus at his triumphal entry. They're there, and, uh, and, and uh, having borne witness to that miracle, and for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. And so uh, the Holy Spirit was getting a lot of mileage out of that, that resurrection of Lazarus, as you might imagine. And the Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone uh, after them. And so uh, here you have uh, the uh, committee, uh, the Let's Kill uh, Jesus committee, uh, that is meeting there in Jerusalem, and they are uh, very, very upset and alarmed at the fact that uh, Jesus is becoming even more popular yet and a threat to their uh, religious institution and the money-making machine that they had turned it into. Now, there were those Greeks among those, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. So Greeks are Gentiles. The world is made up of two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. So these are Gentiles, probably Greeks from, from Greece. They come now to Jew Jerusalem as a part of the Feast of Passover. You ask yourself, why in the world would Gentiles go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Feast of Passover? It probably, it, it, it means that in some way, 
they have either proselytized into Judaism or that they are what the Jews called uh, God-fearers. And so Gentiles who had uh, rejected the very sensual and uh, sin-centered idols of uh, the, the Greek world and the Roman world and all of these different gods that were worshipped and so hard to keep track of and, and they were, uh, Judaism appealed to them in that at the time it was the sole uh, monotheistic religion in the world, just one God. And this God was a holy God and this God was a God who desired to share his holiness with his people. And that was appealing to them. God's holiness is not appealing to all kinds of people. Uh, sometimes I, I, I have concerns about how appealing it is to some Christians. But when you've been a pagan all of your life, and you've worshipped all of the gods of Greek and Rome in the United States of America, and you hear about a God who is holy and will make you holy, that excites you. And they're excited about the God of the Jews. So they've come as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem now to partake in, uh, in, in and participate uh, in, in this uh, feast. As God fears, uh, they worship the God of the Jews. They would attend the synagogue. They would attend the feast, but they would stop short of, uh, of becoming proselytes, which required uh, circumcision. So here they are in Jerusalem. They hear that Jesus uh, is in Jerusalem. And so uh, they make the request uh, uh, there. And uh, they uh, uh, said, uh, came to Philip, and, uh, who was from Bethsaida of, of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Probably the reason they approached Philip of all of the apostles was uh, Philip is the, uh, he's the only one of the apostles that has a Gentile name. So maybe they thought this guy is close to Jesus. He understands uh, the Gentile world a little bit, even by virtue of his name. Maybe we can uh, get some traction here related to him. So they, a simple request, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So even though Jesus, his entire life in public ministry was, was spent within the confines uh, of the, the land of Israel, uh, bumping up uh, in, into Tyre a little bit and all, but mostly there, word of him had spread out into the Gentile world. Uh, and, and they had heard of him and they wanted to see him. And so Philip, his response was that he came uh, and he told Andrew, uh, and in turn, Andrew and Philip then uh, told uh, Jesus. And so they came and they said, they've got these, these Greeks out here, and they said, uh, sir, we wish to see uh, Jesus. Now, Jesus' response uh, to this request is really uh, fascinating. At, at first read, reading, as you see in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And, and so, uh, he answers the disciples here. He doesn't meet with the Greeks in, in this, this situation. It looks like Jesus completely ignores their question 
and, uh, and then uh, just heads off and talking about something just out of the blue that has nothing to do with the request that they've made uh, in, in order to see him, and, uh, but he hasn't done anything at all. He's answering the question here in what he speaks next, the question of how can a person come to know and understand Jesus? Uh, and, and he's answering that question more completely than, uh, than we often realize. And so uh, here is his answer. It just wasn't the answer that they expected. They probably expected Jesus to instruct uh, Philip and Andrew to bring them into a room somewhere uh, where Jesus could meet privately with them. But instead, in, in verses 23 to 26, Jesus reveals to them, and he reveals to all of us, how we, it is that we might uh, come to really see Jesus or really uh, uh, to, uh, to know him. And, uh, and that's, that's, the, that's where he heads now. Jesus said, My hour, the, uh, the hour has come, speaking of his crucifixion, that the Son of Man should be glorified. And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And Jesus said, you want to see me? And the idea uh, isn't that they just kind of want to, uh, uh, the request isn't that they could just see him and take a picture, get a photo, get it up on their social media, and or go back home and say, look, at, we were with Jesus, you've been hearing about him, and, and all, uh, all of that. In the original language, that word see, it carries the idea of to know or to consider or to perceive or to understand. They don't want a glimpse of Jesus. They don't want a photo op with him. They want to meet with him in order that they can really understand uh, what it is that he is about. So if somebody calls the church office and they declare, I'd like to come in and see Pastor Damien, uh, they aren't wanting to make an appointment uh, to sit uh, across the table and stare at me. Uh, but most often they want to get to know me on, on some, uh, some level or understand how I see a particular situation in the light of the Scriptures. And that's what's going on here. And that's the question that Jesus is answering here. And he explains, first of all, that a person can only come to know and understand him uh, if we understand who he is and what he came into the world to do. No one will ever understand Jesus until we understand those things about him. And so in verse 24, uh, Jesus, 23, talk, talking about the cross, in verse 24, he likens himself and his death upon the cross to a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. And so you take a grain of wheat, you put it in the, on the palm of, uh, of your hand, and you see it pictured there in, in your mind. And if, you were to, uh, if I were to ask you if you could see the grain of wheat, you would say, of course I can see it. It's just a little seed right here in the palm of, of, uh, of my, uh, my hand. But you take that seed and you plant it into the ground. And then you watch the blade come forth as the seed begins to grow. It grows straight and tall. Then it forms a head of wheat. 
and it's uh, ripe and it's golden. And then you realize that while you thought you could know all that there was about a grain of sand, a, a grain of, of wheat by looking at it, and then you realize you didn't know anything about it at all until it had died and was uh, buried and then it rose again from that that dead condition. Only when you're able, uh, then are you able to see what's bound up in that single uh, grain of wheat. And in the same way, it's only Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, by that means that we can ever truly know him and understand uh, him. And, and it's only through his death, burial, and resurrection that we can understand what he came into the world to do, his great mission to accomplish in the world, and that is to provide mankind with the, the forgiveness uh, of sins. You notice that Jesus didn't say there in verse uh, 23 that uh, the, the hour has come that the Son of Man uh, should be killed. No, he said that he should be glorified. Glorified how? In his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, implicit in this, in terms of knowing Jesus, really getting to know him, perceive who and what he is. The second thing that's required is to be born again, to partake of the fruit of that death, burial, and resurrection, to be born again by the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit come into my life, bringing the nature of Christ in, uh, in, into my life. And once I do that, a personal relationship with Jesus begins. But then third, in verse 25, Jesus goes on and says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for uh, everlasting life. No one can truly know and understand Jesus if I, uh, I can only come to know him, uh, uh, truly know and understand him, rather, if I follow him into a life of obedience to the Father's will for our lives. And to do so at whatever the sacrifice is required to do that, just an unconditional obedience. And what Jesus does here in verse 25 is basically he takes the seed illustration and now he applies it to our lives as his followers and, and says that we cannot fully know and understand him until we are also willing to be like that grain uh, of wheat. First, allowing God to plant me in this world wherever he wants to plant me, and, and then uh, to die in that place and to stay in that place faithfully, even if it means uh, my, uh, my death. And so, unless the seed dies, what's inside of it will never, ever come out, and that is true of a human life. It's only as we die to our own will and obeying God that uh, what God has planted into our, in our lives by the Holy Spirit will ever come out. You say, how in the world can you die and, and, uh, and still live? And it's just by simply day by day saying uh, no to my flesh and saying yes to God. Okay, here's a fork in the road. Here's a decision I need to make. Okay, God wants me to do this, and so I say yes to this, and I say no to my flesh in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's called a living sacrifice, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter uh, 12. And it's in that place that we learn so much about Jesus 
that we would never otherwise know. In verse 26, he said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, uh, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And so I can only come to truly know and understand uh, Jesus if I follow him uh, and uh, into a life of service. If anyone serves me, him my Father uh, will honor. I think so much of what we learn in the Christian life, we learn in Christian service. Uh, Jesus said he didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. And so how in the world can I come to know him with any kind of depth without communing with him in some area of service to the Lord? It doesn't mean that in not all service takes place within the confines of the acreage of a church or the lot of a church. It's whatever God has called you to do at this point in time in your life where we can look at God and say, God, I know I'm not doing anything at the church, but as best as I can hear your voice, um, what I'm supposed to be doing right now is raising these four kids as unto you in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Or I'm at this job that I would quit tomorrow if I could, but I think you have planted me here, and so I serve you as your ambassador in this place. And that, that's, the, that's the Christian service, doing whatever it is that he's called us uh, to do. And I don't know about you, but I think it's certainly true of men, but one of the easiest ways and the greatest ways to get to know another person is to join them in some kind of a task. And one of the greatest ways to get to know Jesus is to uh, join him in, in Christian service, to join him uh, in, in his work in the world. And so there's a, there is a conversation that, that Christian service makes necessary to survive, a conversation that has to occur between us and Jesus if we're going uh, to make it. And so that conversation is always going on, and we get to know him in a way that a Christian who never serves or gives their life away on, on any kind of level will never come to know uh, him at all. I remember when I was a new Christian and um, street witnessing, and, and I was getting to know him, and I, I would return home from street witnessing, and and uh, then I would think through every encounter that, that I had, and I would talk it through with the Lord, and where I got stumped, and where I couldn't answer that question, and then, and then here was this thing, and they said this, and I thought they were really saying this, but they weren't saying that at all now that I look back on it. Here's the real question that they were asking, and just sifting through all of it with the Lord, the conversation going on. Even to this day, at the end of on the Sunday evenings, I will go home and I will spend time reviewing the day with the Lord. Uh, what did you like? What didn't you like? Talking about my own life. Uh, what should I put differently uh, n next time that might be a little bit more effective? Did I represent not only your truth but your nature? All of these things. And that's the conversation that occurs between us and the Lord that would never occur apart from Christian service. And so Jesus speaks here and says, this is one of the ways uh, that, uh, that we are going to uh, see him and really come to know him. 
And then uh, verse 26, he also talks about coming to know Jesus deeply uh, by following him, just maintain, maintaining a close personal relationship uh, 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 with him. And if anyone serves me, Jesus said at the end of verse 26, him my father will honor. And so there's the, that's the reward of this kind of a life. How does he uh, honor us? What is the reward of living this kind of a life that Jesus calls us to in order to really get to know him? Um, it is the, 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 the glory of it uh, is uh, most especially the honor is in uh, revealing Jesus to us in a greater uh, measure. There's a lot that is in this uh, passage that is so, so important for uh, being able to really understand Jesus. You, if you drop off any of these things, any one, two, three, four of these things, I, w it is to, I would ha be hamstringing myself. I would know a, a little bit about him. I know he's my savior. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know all of these kind of things. But to really know him, uh, Jesus really puts his finger on uh, 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 where that kind of a relationship, that kind of a knowledge comes, and it's invaluable. Jesus went on and said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God is saying to, the Father is saying to Jesus, I uh, have glorified it. That is in Jesus' 30 th 33 and a half years of his life, three and a half years of his public ministry, and I will glorify it again, speaking of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension back into glory. And therefore, the people who stood by, uh, they heard it, but to them it sounded like thunder. And others, uh, as they heard uh, the, the sound, Jesus saying, glorify your name. Then there's this sound. They don't understand what it is. Somebody, others said, it's an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not become because of me, but for your sake. I don't, I didn't need the Father to speak to me um, in, uh, in this way. Uh, he did so uh, for, for your own for your own uh, faith and, and understanding. And then um, talking about the cross here and, and uh, glorify your name and, and speaking about the crucifixion that's, that's going to occur, Jesus here lays out um, some of the the reasons for his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. The first reason is, is to glorify the Father. But then in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Uh, it would judge the world. What a person does with Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, is always a judgment on the, purpose, on the person and never a judgment upon Christ. Always a judgment. It, when, when Jesus was crucified by his very creation there on Calvary in, in Jerusalem, the single greatest sin, the most heinous act uh, in, in all of human history, a history that's filled with uh, these kind, kind of things, man 
demonstrated the fact that we deserve judgment. And, and, and so he comes in and, and uh, the cross is a part of what it is, is it's a judgment of the sin of the world. And that, that sin needs to be judged and that man needs to be uh, saved from that judgment. And then Jesus said, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus' death upon the cross uh, judged also the devil. And if I'm lifted up uh, from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Of course, he died upon the cross. He was glorified in that way in order to provide salvation to all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. And this, he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they've just been declaring him to be the Messiah, and then now he's talking about dying, and they're confused. And, and they were under the influence of the rabbinical teaching of the day, which took and emphasized all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that spoke of His glory, of His eternal kingdom, these things, and they neglected all of the prophecies speaking about the fact that the Messiah would suffer, He would die, He would suffer for uh, our sins, not His own sin. And so they're indoctrinated just in in a, in a particular slant related to the Scriptures. And so they don't understand, you're saying you're the Messiah, but we've been taught the Messiah is going to come and establish an eternal kingdom, and you're talking about dying. And who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in uh, darkness uh, it does not know where he is going. While you have the light, uh, believe in the light you may, that you may uh, become sons of light. And these things he spoke and departed uh, when he was uh, hidden from them. And so uh, he gives them this warning. And uh, the idea is he's using darkness and light here. Uh, of course, in those days, they didn't have lights like this. And also, if you were working in a field or you were working in a shop of some kind, you depended on daylight, and you see it's getting late in the day, you're about to lose the, sun, uh, the, the sunlight that you have that you need, and it means hurry with your task. Get going, because the opportunity for, uh, today is, is slipping out of your hands. And he's saying, now, treat the offer of salvation in the same way. Run uh, to God for salvation. Run to, uh, to me uh, for the salvation that, uh, that he had been talking about uh, here. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him uh, and all of this, uh, so many believed, but others did not, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which was spoken, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been 
revealed. And then uh, John uh, adds uh, further uh, quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, you remember that passage in Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and the angels cried, Holy, 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 uh, in, in that scene. The personage that, John, that Isaiah is seeing there is not God the Father. It is Jesus. And it, it's made clear right here when Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spoke of him related to uh, Jesus. And so here you have this passage where uh, G- Jesus, uh, the, the unbelief of so many people against him in terms of being the Messiah uh, was it, every bit as great as the numbers that were believing in him. And, uh, and it, it is interesting if you notice in verse uh, 37, that they did not believe, and then you get down to 39 where John uh, then starts to quote Isaiah, therefore they could not believe. So you just, if you just read uh, uh, verse uh, 40 here, the quotation from Isaiah, it would look like um, here are people that uh, uh, don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah because they can't believe for some reason that is beyond their own control. But that's not the order that is given to us here. They did not believe in him, and because they refused to believe in him in the face of the miracles in his teaching and and fulfillment of prophecy, then they could not believe. There's a point, I'm convinced, as long as we can draw breath, we're not beyond the ability to be saved. But there is a danger in hardening our heart to God's invitation uh, of salvation. And every time, as these people were doing, every time we say no to God and no to His offer of salvation, we have to harden our heart to do that. And we can harden our heart to a point where it is so hard that the gospel won't penetrate. Uh, But we've done that to ourselves. And that's why no matter who we are, the very first time you hear God's offer to save you and me through Jesus' sacrifice, we need to take that opportunity because our heart will never be more tender toward that message than in that moment. And so the hardness of heart, the reason for it is given uh, to us here, and nevertheless we're told that many of the rulers among the Pharisees and and among the Sanhedrin, secretly they believed in him. But because of the Pharisees and the intimidating uh, uh, work of the Pharisees, they, they did not confess Jesus publicly lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They would lose their job. They would lose their power. They would lose all of that. They didn't want to lose that by publicly identifying with Jesus. And the reason is given here 
Second, because they love the praise uh, of men more than the praise of God. And then Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me, uh, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come into the world to judge, uh, to, to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words uh, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that uh, last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who gave me a commandment that I should say uh, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, uh, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And here he makes it clear to a very religious uh, group here that he didn't come into the world and do the things that he did and speak the things that he spoke on his own accord. He said, I've only spoke to you the truth, the teaching that the Father gave me to give to you. And so to reject me is to reject the Father. We are a package deal as it relates to this. And he's kind of pushing back on this idea that was very strong among the Jews that they could have the Father and reject Jesus and uh, accept the Father's teaching in the Old Testament and reject Jesus' teaching here in his, his earthly ministry and, and that that was an okay kind of middle position to take. And he lets uh, them know, no, there is no middle position. I have represented the Father as fully in my three and a half years of public ministry uh, as ever he was represented uh, in the Old Testament. And then wonderfully there in verse uh, 50 uh, despite all of this and despite the resistance and despite the secret disciples that were here fearful of, 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 of being shunned and, and loving the praise of, of others, even here in, in verse 50, he just throws out the net one more time. It's not too late to be saved. It's not too late to be saved. What I'm telling you about everlasting life is the message that I got from the Father. Take this message. So if you sit here this morning and, or this evening and, um, and you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that tonight. And we'll be up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with the Lord this evening. Your heart will never be more tender or sensitive to God's voice and his invitation than it is right now. And don't look and, say, and look and say, well, I've turned this down and, uh, 30 times in my life and, and, uh, and I'll head out to my car turning it down uh, one more time. And then some, somewhere along the line, click, and then it's going to be really, really hard where those decisions you've already made have hardened your heart and, and will be a, a blockade to making the right decision related to him. And so come forward tonight and, and receive his salvation this evening. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer.
Thank you for this chapter, Lord. So many things that we've looked at tonight. So many things that, truths that you have given us, Jesus, that you have given us about yourself and how to know you. We pray that what we've looked at this evening, and especially those things that you have just spoken individually and personally into individual hearts tonight, that they wouldn't be lost as we head out to our cars and head home and in, into a busy week. But Lord, that these things would find a, a fruitful place in our life, that we would acknowledge, yes, we heard you there. We heard you about worship and the fragrance and what's needed, and we want that to be a part of our lives. However, we would respond to this passage, that it would be able to do its full and needed and wonderful work in each one of our lives. And we pray and we thank you and we ask these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Trinity, would you close us?